This is the Collective Resistance Podcast with your hosts, Leo and Fabiola. We will be discussing why we find ourselves resisting the narratives of the Common Collective, as well as why the Common Collective resists new information. All right, Leo and Fabiola here. Fabi, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. You know, I've had a few uh, cervejas at the uh, pizzeria, so I'm, uh, I'm feeling pretty smooth. <laughs> good for you. So uh, we're going to start this out. Uh, I want to just kind of give you guys an idea. We, we did the last episode on cases and the RT-PCR test that is used to diagnose whether someone has the coronavirus or not. And on reflection and looking back on that particular uh, um, episode, we, there was an area there where we felt like we didn't really do enough justice, and that was around when we discussed whether or not, or I shouldn't say whether or not, I should say, uh, when people ask, well, there are, there are sick people in these hospitals, what are they sick with if they're not sick with coronavirus? And we, we, we gave some answers, but we, we kind of uh, just didn't go in depth on anything, and we thought that it really did merit that. So we're going to do that today. But before we do that, I want to play another clip that actually popped up in one of my social media feeds today, and it is a, another clip from Dr. Carrie Mullis, which if you caught the last episode about cases, Dr. Carrie Mullis is relevant because he was the inventor and the Nobel Prize winner for his work on coming up with the PCR test, which wasn't a test. It was a method to essentially replicate uh, a material in a lab and uh, it has been kind of transformed to be used as a test. And he has a lot of uh, things to say about the use of it in determining uh, a viral epidemic and how he says it shouldn't be uh, used for that. But this was a particularly uh, uh, telling clip because in the last episode, I kind of connected two unrelated uh, clips, one of Carrie talking about PCR and then another one later on of... Dr. Tony Fauci in a Virology Today podcast talking about the issue with cycle counts on the PCR test above 35 to 37 cycles and how they're basically useless. And uh, in this particular clip I'm going to play for you right now, uh, Dr. Kerry Mullis is discussing Tony Fauci. And this is actually an old clip because uh, Dr. Kerry Mullis died a uh, little over a year ago. It was uh, early August in 2019. And my, what conversations we would have uh, today during this uh, epidemic or pandemic if he was still with us, because he certainly had some very interesting things to say when he was still around. So this particular clip takes place in the heyday of HIV AIDS. And uh, Tony Fauci was, I believe, still the director of the NIH at that point, he's been around for many different administrations, so that kind of gives you an idea of how long he's been a player in the mix. And uh, let's go ahead and listen to this, but this is Dr. Kerry Mullins talking about Tony Fauci and science in general. Humanity that, that, that it wants to go to the, all the details and stuff and listen, you know, these guys like Fauci get up there and start talking, you know, he doesn't know anything really about anything. And I'd say that to his face, nothing. The man thinks you can take a blood sample and stick it in an electron microscope and if it's got a virus in there, you'll know it. He doesn't understand electron microscopy and he doesn't understand medicine. And he, doesn't, he should not be in a position like he's in. Most of those guys up there on the top are just total administrative people and they don't know anything about what's going on at the bottom. You know, those guys have got an agenda, which is not what we would like them to have, being that we pay for them to take care of our health in some way. They've got a personal kind of agenda. They make up their own rules as they go. They change them when they want to. And they smugly, like Tony Fauci, does not mind going on television in front of the people that pay his salary and lie directly into the camera. You can't expect the sheep 
to really respect the best and the brightest. They don't know the difference, really. I mean, I, I like humans, don't, don't get me wrong, but basically there is a, there is a, there's a vast, the vast majority of them do not possess the, the ability to judge who is and who isn't a really good scientist. I mean, that's a problem, that's a main problem actually with science, I'd say, in this century, because science is being judged by people, funding is being done by people who don't understand it. Okay, who do we trust? Fauci? Fauci doesn't know enough to, you know, if Fauci wants to get on television with somebody who knows a little bit about this stuff and debate him, he could easily do it, because he's been asked. I mean, I've had a lot of people, president of the University of South Carolina, asked Fauci if he'd come down there and debate me on the stage in front of the student body because I wanted somebody who was from the other side to come down there and balance my, because I felt like, well, these guys can listen to me, but I need to have somebody else down here that's going to tell me the other side. But it was, he didn't want to do it. So what do you think of that? I guess in science, the same thing happens, you know, where people at the top, they do the administrative work and they just don't work with the science, you know, close to the science, you know, at the microscope, at the lab. Uh, but they are out there making policy. Well, and I think that, that the interesting thing to me is that I've been critical of Fauci and there have been other people that have been critical of Fauci. But, you know, they really aren't people within science and whatnot. You know, they're, they're maybe pundits or they're just regular people like you and I. And when you do that, you get this big backlash from people on Facebook. Oh, this man, he's been in administration after administration. You know, he's very well respected and all this stuff. I'm like, well, look, there's a goddamn Nobel Prize winner who invented the very test or process that is being used, or should I say misused, for this thing that Tony Fauci is really helping push. And he is calling Tony Fauci out and saying, look, you, you're, you're a liar. You, we know you lie to the public. You, do, you change the story. You do what you have to do to get what you want to happen. And so, I mean, I, I throw that back in people's faces now. I put that clip up on Facebook, and I just thought it was funny. I got, like, no comments. And, and, and part of it, I think, is that people just don't understand what's going on. But isn't that the intriguing thing? There is all this going on in the background with these personalities that are in play and whatnot. And this is important. And people don't know about this, and people are just like, oh, well, this person is a, at a high position and. uh the government, so they uh, they must know what they're doing. Why would we Why would we question them? Yeah, it's interesting. We don't trust uh, the government with our money, but we trust them with our health. With our health, exactly. So, um, you know, that kind of leads us into what we wanted to talk about today, because uh, we did have a friend that gave us a little bit of feedback, um, not necessarily directly related to our last episode, but. Um, just an ongoing conversation, and that friend had asked, well, you know, if you don't believe that uh, these people are getting sick from COVID, then what's causing this? And uh, I know, Fabi, you got that question directly. What, what were your thoughts? Yeah, so we are no experts, right? So all we can do is speculate um, from our journey, you know, of um, healing our son, and from everything we've read, all the conferences we attended, the books we read, uh, documentaries that we watched, and just kind of following our intuition. Because in our case, um, the medical field didn't really have anything to offer us except for saying, and go get some therapy and maybe you'll get a little better. So, um, Well, and, and a lot of trial and error, right? And, a and, lot of trial and error. And, and we we saw the benefits when we found the things that worked, right? And those things should not have worked if the traditional narrative was correct. They right. should not have. So, I mean, you, you even wrote an article about it. Um, did you want to talk about that at all? I know that's hosted on uh, your website, Delicate Belly. Yes, I wrote um, about the immune system or, you know, I keep saying, you know, all the time. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We, we do know. I want to get know. better at that, uh, at that. But I wrote an article called Tips for uh, Boosting Immunity. 
around August. Which we will link to in the show notes. Yes. And in that article, I kind of spoke about the terrain. So we have germ theory, which believes that microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, um, parasites, uh, viruses cause disease, make people sick. Um, But there's also another theory called terrain theory. And just to give you an idea in the human body, we just started, I mean, the the study of the microbiome that exists in our body and also in our soil, right? It's very new. I mean, I remember going to a conference in 2012 and uh, watching this lecture and, and the lady was discussing, the scientist was discussing about the diversity that we have in the microbiome that we haven't, we haven't even touched the surface of how many different strains of these microorganisms exist in there and all the processes that they perform, you know, metabolically speaking, uh, and they produce genes. So to give you an idea, in the human body, our cells um, produce, let me see my article, I got to refer to my notes. Um, Where is my gene note? Our cells produce around 20,000 genes, okay, in our, in our body. In contrast, our microbiome could produce anywhere between 2 to 20 million genes. So, a lot more than our <laughs> human cells. So, if those microorganisms didn't want us here, we wouldn't be here. So, when we talk about terrain, just to, to give you an idea in comparison to germ theory um one of the doctors that we like to listen to dr cowan has his example on cow's milk and listeria so listeria is a bacteria that you find in milk and you find also in deli products and uh, when i was pregnant i remember my doctor the first time around telling me make sure you don't you know, don't eat deli products if you didn't warm them up, you know, don't drink raw milk, yada, 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 because this could harm your baby. And when a poison, a cow that was poisoned, right, with their diet, let's say they're eating GM grains uh, that have been sprayed with pesticides, or receiving antibiotics or hormones or what have you to to boost their milk production. Um, You drink that cow's milk and now we know for mammals, the milk, the whatever poison you take in, let's say if you are breastfeeding as a mother and you drink alcohol, you know that a little bit of the alcohol is gonna end up in the milk. So medicine says, make sure you don't go out drinking, you know, and then breastfeed your baby because it will express in your milk so the poison the cow was poisoned so that poison will express in the milk it just happens if you look under a microscope you might find this bacteria called listeria right people consume that milk they get sick they get some diarrhea and so germ theory says the culprit is the bacteria the bacteria terrain theory on the other hand says well was it the bacteria or was it the terrain the poison milk that caused the problem and maybe the bacteria is actually a solution trying to remediate the poison because that's what bacteria does yes. a lot yeah well bacteria you know in in the wild like if you have a, a dead animal in the forest there's all kinds of microorganisms there decomposing the animal and bringing it back to the earth you're not going to say the animal is infected right you're going to say oh bacteria is just doing what it's supposed to do so how come when people are sick bacteria is then you know this this uh, enemy microbiome is now being blamed for the sickness well um and then on that note uh we did want to give you a little bit of background on who dr cowan is but uh be it that you just kind of gave that example does it merit reading that passage 
in the book right now, or should we go, I go ahead and do the uh, introduction? What do you think? I mean, we can give the introduction. I just wanted to say one more thing, yeah. though. So when my friend asked about COVID, right, so we know COVID-19 is actually the disease, right, the collection of symptoms that we're, people are saying that a, a coronavirus, a strain of coronavirus, a SARS-CoV-2 is uh, causing in people. So when she asked, this COVID exists, it's a little, it's, it's not really the right question, right? We want to ask, is the virus really causing this disease that we're seeing that we call COVID-19? Well, and, and that is an interesting topic, because I think when we, when we learn our basic understanding of like the immune system and all that, we don't really think about the two things. In fact, I'll be honest with you, up until a few years ago, I didn't even really, uh, it didn't even really click with me around HIV AIDS. You know, I mean, I always knew, okay, they say HIV creates AIDS, but I mean, it's really the way they're making it out to be in, in germ theory. There, there's always something that is then creating the disease, right? Which is like you said, the symptoms. So in this case, you know, we're not saying that there isn't a particle that we can call SARS-CoV-2. Sure, we can we can do that, right? There, there's tons of viruses. There are uh, uh, 10 to the, I think it's 10 to the 41st power of viruses floating in the air around you right now. So when you breathe, think about that. You're, you're, there are more viruses in the air when you take a breath than there are stars in the known universe, okay? <laughs> so they have pinpointed one particular one and they've or sequence or sequence and they've said that this is what we're what we think is causing this disease and we're calling it SARS-CoV-2 and then the people who present with the actual symptoms uh, are what we call people who have COVID-19. So now to give you a little bit of background on Dr. Thomas Cowan because I think it would be good because he does serve a purpose in the broader conversation here. Um, he is, oh, yeah, I was just going to say he wrote, uh, a recent, recently he wrote this book called the contagion myth, why viruses, including coronavirus are not the cause of disease. Yeah, and that's relatively new. It just got released within probably the last month or so. Yes. Yeah. You got a copy immediately. I think you pre-ordered it. Um, and you've read it. I have not read it yet, but uh, it's, it's very good, very interesting. We're going to just touch on a little bit of it today, but to give you a little background on who he is, he's actually written several books. But uh, Thomas Cowan, MD, he is the vice president at the Weston A. Price organization, and uh, he discovered the work of the two men who would have the most influence on his career while teaching gardening as a Peace Corps volunteer in Swaziland, South Africa. He read Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Weston Price, and a fellow volunteer explained the arcane principles of Rudolf Steiner's biodynamic agriculture. These events inspired him to pursue a medical degree. Cowan graduated from Michigan State University College of Human Medicine in 1984, how apropos, uh, after his residency in family practice at Johnson City Hospital in Johnson City, New York, he set up an anthroposophical medical practice in Petersboro, New Hampshire. Dr. Cowan has served as VP of the Physicians Association for Anthroposophical Medicine and is a founding board member of the Weston A. Price Foundation. So, and I mentioned he has several books that you can find on Amazon and other uh, bookstores. Just to tie in a little bit between what we're saying about terrain theory and actually biodynamic farming, if you haven't heard, is it comes from anthroposophy, which is a philosophy that was brought forth by Rudolf Steiner. And uh, the idea of biodynamic farming is that in your garden, there's a place for everything. So is a harmonious environment. So there's a place for the pests, and there's a place for the food, there's a place for the bugs, there's a place for the bees. Um, so when we talk about our, the organism of Mother Earth, there is a balance, like a homeostatic. Homeostasis, yeah. Yeah, balance and the planet that keeps things alive. And there's also the same balance in our body. 
And, and my belief is in, of a lot of researchers, scientists, and, and doctors that it's this balance of the microbiome that keeps us healthy and vibrant. And when that balance is compromised, then that's when disease can show up. And just to go ahead and dive in on that other clip that I had mentioned to you, this is uh, from a recent interview that Dr. Cowan did with Melissa Floyd on her podcast, which is, uh, what's the name of that? What They Aren't Telling what You. What They Aren't Telling You. And yeah. Great, great podcast, by the way. And Melissa, she's a mother of a vaccine-injured child, and she's an activist in that field. And she's been very vocal about what's happening and also very vocal about the vaccine that's coming. Yeah, and she's fantastic. I mean, she really does a nice job. She produces, you know, all her own content. And, uh, uh, you know, we're excited that she did this interview with Dr. Cowan, although I will uh, tell Dr. Cowan he needs to get a a new microphone. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So let's go ahead and play that real quick. It has to do with Carrie Mullis, who we played in that first clip. Uh, So let's hear him talk about that. Viruses are how the body excretes toxins. And, you know, it's very similar to a guy named Kerry Mollis, who actually uh, was the inventor and given the Nobel Prize for discovering this PCR test, which is the test that's being used to so-called, doc, you know, prove that this is caused by a virus. And Kerry Mollis was adamant that this test can never be used A, to diagnose a viral infection. Mm -hmm. B, you can never use this test to prove viral causation, period. And and he said anybody who tries to do that either simply doesn't understand the science or the nature of this test. And that actually led Kerry to publicly say that there is no evidence that HIV causes AIDS because it was completely based on on PCR tests and then antibody tests, which are even more unreliable. And mm-hmm. I can get into that if you need to. But the interesting thing about it is, so Carrie, you know, was a brilliant chemist and scientist. And when he discovered that there was no evidence of the, to suggest that HIV was causing AIDS, except the PCR and the antibody tests, which he knew were completely, uh, basically bogus, he said he, he didn't say anything for a decade because he kept thinking, I must be stupid or I don't understand this. The whole world can't be wrong. And that's a very natural response. And I must say, uh, even though I didn't have so much of that because I tend to believe myself more than I probably should. But anyways, I know what he means by that. You just can't believe it. And then finally, he, he said... Publicly, I used to just think there was a bunch of wise men out there, and if I ever had a chance to talk to them, they could set me straight, so I'm not going to say anything about this. And then finally, he goes public and says what he thinks, and then they give him a Nobel Prize, and then he goes to a dinner party of Nobel Prize winners, and there's Luc Montagne, who discovered, was given the Nobel Prize for discovering that HIV causes AIDS based on antibody tests. So he goes up to Luke and he says, finally, I get to talk to the wise man. Can you show me, can you give me a reference for a study that shows that this HIV virus was isolated, purified, and was shown to cause AIDS? And Montagne said, yeah, there's this one with baboons. And Kerry happened to know that study, and he said, they didn't even mention HIV in that study. He said, do you have a different one that actually talks about HIV? And Montagne walked away and wouldn't talk to him. Hmm. At that point, Kerry said to himself, and then eventually publicly, the reality is there's no wise men out there. Wow. No wise men out there. Yes. And and I think that uh, why that is so apropos is that... Uh, you know, you've got this guy, this genius, you know, he, and he's so relevant with this right now because this test that he developed, this PCR method, is, you know, essentially creating the whole discussion because uh, it's the results or the way it's being manipulated is, uh, 
to show these cases that don't necessarily have to show as positive if we were doing this uh, differently. And um, it's just it's just so crazy to think that that here he is. He had some of the same doubts himself as one of these super smart people finally gets the opportunity to go talk to these other smart guys and say, hey, I couldn't figure this out how you did this. And you used my test. Can you show me the study, you know, that, that, that proved it out? And then the guy doesn't have anything to share with them. And rather than put up a debate on it, he just walks away. And it's like, how, how did you put it earlier? You said something. You said... Uh, Are you talking about the Lord of the Rings? Yeah, well, that's what it was. That's oh, okay, what it was. Yeah, okay. yeah. Because you said it's yeah, just the so Lord I of think the Rings. I, I think the world might work a little bit like that. You give someone uh, some notoriety, right? And you say, hey, here, you're going to win this Nobel Prize. We're going to give you a bunch of money. But there could be an agenda behind it. And maybe he doesn't say anything because here he's getting, you know, notoriety. He's getting money. He's, he's, going, he's, going, he's going along with the... He train. might be. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But but but, it, know, but it's right. intriguing, you know, because here is another guy that also won a Nobel Prize, you know, in science, and and uh, this guy just says, you know what, I don't need to have this conversation. You know what I mean? And that that's just wild to think of that. Yes. And and now look where we're at many years later. So anyway, I know there was a piece then from Dr. Cowan's book that you wanted to read in regards to Louis Pasteur. Yeah, but before I read that, I just there's this meme I ran across and um, it was inspired by Dr. Cowan and other uh, MDs, uh, one of them, Dr. Andrew Kaufman. And he also has been very vocal about, uh, you know, the testing, the measures taken to, um, you know, control the, the spread and, he actually is one of the founding doctors of the World Doctors Alliance, and I was trying to remember what that was on the last episode. So it's a growing body of nurses, doctors, scientists that are questioning the, the narrative, and they're asking, you know, why are we, you know, locking people down in their homes and, you know, the whole social, social distancing mask, whatever measures that have been taken um so i wanted to tie the loose end from last episode but here in this um this meme it says so-called viruses are simply fragments of former cell components virologists have never actually seen them attack or hijack a cell and multiply inside of it as they can only create still images of dried and treated specimens with the electron microscope. Images of what appears to be a virus entering a cell is actually phagocytosis or pinocytosis done by the cell as a cleanup or recycling action and the death and disintegration of cells in the laboratory that virologists attribute to a virus is actually caused by the antibiotics and other poisons used in the procedure. And just another thing to note, uh, in Latin, uh, the word virus actually means poison. Hmm. Interesting. And, and uh, you know, with, with uh, Dr. Cowan in the book, uh, he has this other uh, metaphor where he's talking about the... Uh, what was it, the ping pong ball? Uh-huh. And that was interesting to me because it made me think of uh, the Cameron Kyle Sedell doctor interview. He was one of the doctors in New York. I mentioned it in the last episode. He was, I think, in the ER uh, working with these patients, and he was explaining some of the weird things they were seeing. And um, it's really too much to go in depth, but, but uh, let me just kind of read you what, Dr. Cowan wrote in his book in chapter one, he said, imagine that an inventor calls you up and says he has invented a new ping pong ball that is able to knock down brick walls and therefore make the process of demolition much easier and safer for builders and carpenters. Sounds interesting, right? Although it is 
hard to imagine how a ping pong ball could do such a thing. You ask the inventor to show you how he has determined that the new ping pong balls are able to destroy brick walls. His company sends you a video. The video shows them putting a ping pong ball in a bucket of rocks and ice cubes. Then they take the bucket and fling it at a small brick wall. The wall goes down. There's the proof, they say. Wait a minute. How do we know it was the ping pong ball that knocked the wall down and not the rocks and ice cubes that were also in the bucket? So I don't know if you're connecting those dots there, but I mean, it's an interesting visual and at least what jumps out at me. Do you want to mention something first? Yeah, I just want to go back to what we were saying earlier when we found this RNA sequence in the cultures, the blood samples of people in China that were coming down with this collection of symptoms. There were several things. In that blood culture, I mean, there was pollution particles, there's other debris. Uh, but what he's saying is this, I mean, how do you know from the collection of all those things without actually purifying that culture and following Koch's postulate, which is the gold standard of uh, infectious, infectious disease. disease. And as we said, it wasn't really done. There were some studies, but they were a little shady. <coughs> Um, how do we know? Right? Yeah, yeah, because it, how it, do we know it's not? You know, maybe that particle is there just to uh, as part of the solution, like the example of the cow's milk and the listeria we we're talking about earlier. Yeah, it, it, it's it's an intriguing thought, and so and something else that dawned on me was that at least that jumped out when when our friend asked that you know well what is causing it. And, uh, you know, I was writing a bit of story in my head. I, I really don't know where that person was coming from exactly. But um, I thought to myself, well, you know, it's not all my job to tell you what is causing it. Okay. Just like if, um, you know, if, if somebody was doing an investigation on a murder and I had some information and I said, well, you know, I saw this, this big guy. Uh, attack that woman who died. I, I think it's that that guy that killed her, and you say it was a suicide. You know, well, I mean, I have this other... I don't know who he is, you know, but and I didn't see him kill her, but he was going after her, so I think it's him. So it's not up to me to go find out who that guy is, right? It, it's up to the people who are in charge of the investigation. But we do have kind of a... Uh, a model right now, which is the germ theory, right? So we're which all is a theory, the germ theory, and we are going right. It's it, in a little bit of a way. It's almost like profiling, right? We immediately go to the germ, um, just like the police may immediately uh, go to a specific uh, description of of a, of a human being, you know, that is most likely to cause the crime. It's not unlike that in a lot of science too, and so. I'm not saying we have all the answers, but we're saying that there is, since they did not do the full isolation of the, the virus culture, and the so. culture, then they haven't ruled out all those other things that are in the blood. And I think a lot of people don't realize how many things are in blood and tissue. I mean, you're talking about, you know, I mean, just it's almost countless numbers of things that are in there. And so to pinpoint one thing you know, is like to go out and pinpoint one star in the universe and say, okay, that's what's doing it and nothing or the else. the ping pong ball. So we say it's the ping pong ball that's breaking the brick wall. Yeah. But and then we have rocks and we have ice and we have a bucket. Well, <laughs> and, and then the other piece too is when you look at the symptoms, right? The symptoms mm -hmm. are like ever changing. They're always moving. It's like nobody gets sick from anything else. So it's like, well, uh, is that likely? Do other diseases present like that? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like COVID may be one of the first ones that presents like that, where it just keeps inventing symptoms. You know, even today, I just read a thing about, I sent you that link about, uh, uh, they were saying children now who, even if they were asymptomatic, are showing markers for 
having blood vessel damage uh, if they test positive for, for COVID-19 in, in the bulk of the positive tests. I mean, they just are, keep coming up with new stuff, but they're only looking to COVID. They're not looking around at anything We're else. We're not looking at the environment. We're not looking at the terrain. So how do we know what's causing it if we're first of all not using the gold standard? So basically we are using epidemiology to prove that there's this RNA sequence that's causing a disease, right? So we're observing. So way back in the day, uh, there were people getting sick, you know, sailors, you know, sailing in the ocean. They were getting this disease. They were presenting all kinds of symptoms. Um, and people thought that disease was uh, transmissible at the time. And they were scared. And, you know, some people get it. Other people don't. And But a lot of people were dying around the same time in these sh ships. I think it was like, I don't know, in the 16, 1700. Um, and I think that they finally figured out that those sailors were actually vitamin C deficient. Yeah, it was it was a vitamin. It was something that... Uh, they had scurvy, Scurvy, I think. scurvy, that's what it was. So here we are, by observation epidemiology, we're saying, okay, they're all getting sick at the same time. It must be like they're transmitting it to each other, but it turns out... Their diet, the diet they were having, you know, sailing across the oceans was devoid of vitamin C. I believe it was vitamin C. And then they were developing this disease now that we know as scurvy. Well, and, and, and uh, to bring that to the broader point when we're talking about these people getting sick, I mean, we have different waves of this, right? We had the initial wave. We have this second wave, if you will. And we had the lull in the middle. But what I was trying to make the point in the last episode, I don't think I did a very good job, but um, if we try to tie the testing, right? So if we say, hey, people are normally getting sick with normal things, right? Like the flu or common colds or whatever. And under normal circumstances, when COVID didn't exist, people aren't thinking too much of those things, right? A lot of people would just, you know, like I said, take some NyQuil, watch some Netflix for, for you know, four or five days and, and, and get over it, right? Uh, but we are in this vacuum of stress and uh, constantly being told about how deadly and lethal this is that puts your mind in a fight or flight state for a lot of people. And that... Uh, releases uh, uh, cortisol, which essentially makes you more susceptible to uh, sickness. It can make whatever sickness that you may have even worse to combat. It can cause chronic inflammation, right? So we talk about fight and flight. If there's a tiger coming at us, the human response is, let's throw a bunch of oxygen at our larger muscles, you know, and pump blood to them so you can run and fight if you have to so you can save yourself but what happens with this threat or what people are calling the invisible enemy right uh it's it's been a constant for eight months now and what have we been doing what have we been told to do so if there's a balance in our human body that is kept by these microorganisms let's say they exist in our body. But when we do um, a lot of hand sanitizer, what are we doing? We're killing this microbiome. When we are not breathing in fresh air, the best way to enrich the diversity of your microbiome is uh, working with the soil and breathing the air around you. That makes you stronger. And now we are not supposed to be around people, right? And people, different people have different diversity of the microbiome like when you are born as a child and you go through the birth canal there is a flora of bacteria there in the birth canal that the child will you know inhale or ingest, ingest yeah. when they go through and that becomes their initial uh, microbiome 
And a lot of children these days, you know, if you're born of C-section and, you know, that's needed sometimes, emergency C-section or in some countries like Brazil, most births, I would say like 90% of the births are C-section, you're going to inherit the microbiome because you're not, the baby's not able to go through the birth canal of the hospital, right? And what is that? You know, there's probably all kinds of bacteria imbalances there. It's, or it's a sterile environment, right? When you're in the OR, there's no bacteria there. So if we're thinking about bacteria creating all those genes, sending all these instructions to build up our body and do all these different functions, when there's an imbalance, there's going to be disease, which is an imbalance of, in the human body. Well, you know, Dr. Cowan, that reminded me, he, he spoke with, um, I can't think of who his guest was, but she was uh, very well versed in glyphosate. And uh, she talked about the fact that, you know, um, glyphosate, you know, Monsanto says that, okay, it's not harmful to, to humans. However, we know that it uh, decimates the soil as far as the, the, the microbiome and the microorganisms that live in the soil. And you are like half microorganisms or more uh, mm -hmm. in your body. So, so now your food th that has these microorganisms uh, that you're ingesting no longer has any of these microorganisms. So you no longer have that part of your body. Or so, the diversity. Or the diversity. So, so by killing the microorganisms organisms in the soil, you are killing yourself in a way because yeah. those were part of what made you. And people don't realize that. They think you're a bunch of these tissues and you are, you have your organs, but you have so many uh, uh, organisms living inside of you. And those organisms are also uh, um, uh, helping, they're, they're adjusting your mood. If parasites are asking for sugar and stuff and they're, oh, they're causing cravings, cravings, you know, they're getting your body to yeah. release uh, things that tell you to eat sugar and all. So, I mean, there is so much going on in this machine that is your body. And, you know, with glyphosate, we're, we're killing that and then we're not. And so, so I, I just want to mention that when people are forced to stay in their homes, what happens to their diet? I mean, when they're stressed, what, what, do you, what happens when you get stressed? Sugar. Sugar. And, and you, you tend to eat like crap. So it, people who's... So you don't get out there, you don't exercise, you don't breathe in the air because you're wearing the mask. And by the way, a lot of those uh, surgical masks, they are made with toxic material. So there you are wearing the mask thinking we're protecting yourself and other people which to me still it doesn't really make sense because if you were let's say you wear a seatbelt, are you wearing it for other people or are you wearing it to protect yourself so if you feel a mask works and i'm all for people want to wear masks you know it's their choice but it doesn't help the situation because here you're not breathing in fresh air and on top of it your mask might have toxic ingredients in it and we will post um, a link about those ingredients that could be ingredients or materials mm -hmm. <laughs> or chemicals that could be in your surgical, you know, those blue masks, well, especially. And, and I think people should be honest with themselves and, and how many people are handling the mask and washing it daily. I mean, how many people are doing that? Or I, let's say seriously. you're sanitizing your mask, right? You are putting more chemicals in there, more poisons and that's not going to help your microbiome. So it's not going to help your immune system because the microbiome is, plays a huge role in the immune system. Well, but to come back to what we were talking about, though, around um, what's causing this, so where I was trying to go with that is now you have these people who are getting, you know, these, these common everyday sicknesses and they are under that immense stress, which exacerbates it. Right. And they believe things about it. They believe, oh, man, I might have COVID. So I'm going to go in and I'm going to get tested. Well, now we're in to the realm of the test. And as we talked about for an hour in the last episode that we published, the test is horrific. 
So now you've got, if you're in a test that is 35 cycles or more, which we established that most of the tests in the USA are 35, 40, 45 cycles, then you have a 97% chance of, or more, of it being a false positive. So now, now you've been told you have COVID. So if you tell, if you tell them, if you're told you have COVID, are you going to stay at the hospital? Well, probably. Look, I'm, I, I'm, I'm having cough and I'm having, yeah, I want to stay at the hospital. And so now the hospitals are filling up with people who, now, I mean, are there people that have some, a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, uh strange, uh, uh, symptoms as well? Yes, there are. But I mean, do we really know what the full makeup is that's in there? Is it a lot of people that have the flu? Because we did mention in the last one, too, that the flu seems to be nearly eradicated. Or maybe, you know, there is this additional poison, and we will definitely be talking about that on another episode of other theories out there that is, you know, think about it, in the air and the water. We have poison in the water, as we said in the last episode. We have poison in the air. We have poisons being injecting in us. And even for people that are pro-vaccines, which we're not against vaccines, but we have a problem with the ingredients of vaccines. We actually know what's in vaccines. So there are heavy metals and other ingredients that haven't been tested synergistically. Well, and something you just mentioned uh, made me remember, I saw an article today. I mean, there was actually several articles about it, but um, now again, they're talking about, you know, recently they've been talking a lot about these uh, severe COVID-19 cases that have these, you know, like long-term side effects and whatnot. And they're saying that a Danish study found that people with elevated levels of a compound called PFBA were more than twice as likely to have a severe form of COVID-19. And so the title of the article is PFAS chemical associated with severe COVID-19. And um, this is what they call a forever chemical. And um, I'd have to dive into the, uh, it says PFBA is one of the class of industrial compounds often called forever chemicals that has come to contaminate soil, water, and food around the world. It has been presented as relatively safe because it stays in human blood for much less time than some of the other compounds in the class and is a shorter molecule. But traits that are thought to be in indications of its innocuousness. PFBA, which was created by 3M, is based on a four-carbon chain that is gone from human blood in a matter of days. It is still in use, while PFOA, which is based on eight carbons and stays in the human blood for years, has been phased out since 2015. So this is something that uh, 3M produced, and if I remember, uh, I could be wrong, I want to say that this chemical is tied to like, um, you know, uh, cooking surfaces and stuff like that. Like, on, like to, I, mean, I think it is. I believe it is tied to that. And it's used in many other things as well. But it will get into the water supply. I could be wrong on the Teflon, but uh, it doesn't. Here it says PFBA is used in electronics, clothing, including water-resistant outerwear, protective gear for medical staff and firefighters, such as surgical gowns, firefighting foam, carpets, floor polish, laboratory equipment, leather treatment, food packaging, cosmetics, including body lotions and foundation, concealer, eyeshadow, powder, and bike lubricants, according to a recently published paper on previously unknown uses of the chemical. Okay, so I was wrong on, on Teflon, but um, isn't that interesting? Because you mentioned in the last episode when we were talking about this, you said, um, you know, even the clothes we wear you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, have, yes. ke- have chemicals in them and stuff. And so then these things get into the water supply. They never leave. And there have not been long-term studies mm-hmm. to determine what the health impacts. And this is just one thing. I mean, people are dumping uh, lots of pharmaceutical drugs into the water supply. They're getting rid of them in their toilets and sinks. And these don't uh, uh, just go away. You know, the filter systems aren't able to get all of this out and that continually that load continues to increase and again there's no long-term studies saying look what's in the water that you're drinking what is the long-term um uh, consumption of that cocktail doing to you and so now we're, we're pinning this on COVID-19 and we don't have any of these other things that are in the cocktail in the mix 
you know, we're, we're not talking about them at all. They're not even on the radar. And a lot of people will say, well, this just came out of nowhere. And uh, these things have always been in the water. We haven't had the problem. And I'd say, well, if we look at overall death rates, they're not that different from year to year, even though COVID is one of the primary killers this year. And again, look at the testing. If we adjust the testing, the, the numbers would be different. The numbers would be lower, and some of those deaths would get applied to those other things uh, because now COVID wouldn't be uh, uh, an applicable choice to be on the death certificate. So this is such a complicated math problem, and it's all in how the data is being organized. And we need to get uh, our arms around that, and we need to say, okay, how do we need to restructure that? How do we need to modify that test? What are the other things that are happening to people as far as what they're exposed to in some of these hotspot areas versus others? Um, what is the long-term effects of being in, in a kind of a lockdown, especially if you're an older person or somebody who has, even if you're young, but you have comorbidities and you know, you're stuck at home? What does the depression do to you? Uh, again, there are so many things we've never experienced before and we are not factoring them into the equation. We're in this new world, and we're only looking at the same old paradigm, which is, oh, okay, there's this germ. This germ is making people sick. But then we've created this whole other alternate reality of people stuck in their houses or the stress. I mean, I know people who love the mask. Okay, it doesn't bother them when they go out. But when I go out in the mask, it bothers me, and there's a stress level that. Now, I'm doing that to myself, okay, but it's there. And so what is that long-term effect on me, and does that make me more susceptible to, uh, uh, you know, worse symptoms when I do get sick? So I know you wanted to chime in. Yeah, I was actually, uh, I saw... uh an article about uh, ingredients or materials and masks or toxic materials and masks not too long ago. And I just tried to Google it and I can't, you can't get anywhere. They got rid (laughs) of that. You can't get it anymore. But I just wanted to uh, read one last here quote from Cowan's book about Louis Pasteur. So you say that in English, uh, which is, the father of germ theory. And he says, it was Louis Pasteur who convinced the skeptical medical community that contagious germs cause disease. However, he eventually admitted that the whole effort to prove contagion was a failure, leading to his famous deathbed confession that the germ is nothing. The terrain is everything. And I never knew that he said that. You know what I mean? Isn't that wild? Yeah. I told you in the in the first episode, I think, uh, that I had that Value Tales book, mm-hmm. you know, and it just said, oh, look, here, here's the vaccine or the, the you know, uh, penicillin that, that, that fixes everything. And, and here on his deathbed, you don't ever hear about that. Yeah, he actually kept a notebook for for years about his experiment. And I think, before he died, this is in Callum's book too, and there are some sources. He, one of his, uh, he asked that nobody ever, you know, publish his book, which is weird, or share his notes with anybody. But one of his family members apparently uh, did that, uh, gave the notebook to a museum, and then a researcher in the early 1900s or in the 30s, I think, ended up uh, doing an analysis of his work. And, I mean, if I would just read it to you, it would be several pages. But basically, I mean, there was a, there was a lot of fraudulent information, a lot of, a lot of the uh, infectious contagion experiments he did, you know, uh, Included, you know, poisoning the animals and then saying, oh, look, they had all these symptoms. So it must be the germ and not the terrain. But he ended up coming clean at the end of his days. <laughs> but I, I don't know what happened then, you know, if Big Pharma already. I don't know if they had Big Pharma back it was, then. It was, <laughs> it was medium pharma at the time. <laughs> at the time. But, you know, think about it. And I said, you know, again, uh, would it 
wouldn't it be much if we're talking about the world the way it works currently in the current current paradigm it's all about profit right making profit so if we say that a germ or a microbe is causing such and such disease that's really what allopathic medicine a big part of it is right uh, fighting germs with medicine and if we're gonna say a, something invisible that we can't see is causing disease um, we can create medicine we can create uh, vaccines and there's profit to be made there but if we say it's environmental is there any profit to be made if it's environmental? Oh, who is paying that bill? Well, there's probably uh, there's probably damages to be paid, right? <laughs> because there's somebody creating those uh, environmental Toxins, factors, yeah. you know. And and that's uh, there's this one uh, pick that came up today in my feed, uh, and it was about Brandy Vaughn. You yes. know, uh, she founded LearnTheRisk.org. She was the uh, uh, was she a mother of a of a vaccine injured child? Um, I don't know. I I do know that she's an ex Merck pharma rep, and uh, she's quoted as saying, uh, "Medical school should be renamed pharma school. Doctors only learn to treat symptoms with drugs while ignoring the cause. Real health won't be found inside a doctor's office." And she uh, she died. Um, don't know all the details around uh, how she died. I do know that she. She did put a post up not super long ago stating that uh, she is not suicidal. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't depressed. And she was not depressed and she had no known health issues. And uh, we don't know the details, but her son did come forward and said that, she, that, that uh, they found her dead. And so uh, that happened this week. So we just want to thank her for everything she's done for educating people on, um, you know, really doing the part that really doctors should be doing around informed consent, you know, to, to get people mm -hmm. to understand the real risks involved with uh, some of those interventions. Yeah, there's a GoFund face uh, page um, for her in her memory right now, and we'll post the link on the notes for the podcast. Um, she One of the projects that she was doing to educate people about the risks um, of vaccine injury um, she had signs made on trucks going all over the country and uh, one of the signs said vaccine doses for u.s children 1960 five doses 1983 24 doses 2018 72 doses do you know what it's what's in a vaccine? So just something to think to think about. about. Uh, I think that's probably a good place to end. Yes. Okay, I think we uh, did it justice. I'm pretty happy with. Uh, Are you? How we? Ended. I am cold, so I'm shivering a little bit. So when I talk, my voice is a little bit. And I'm trying to figure Come out like a line that we can end on, you know, as far as uh, there was this one that I was trying to find. I'd posted a while back and it was something like, uh, um, you know, the minute somebody tells you the one thing you you hate, you know, take a moment and then turn around to that person and 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 say, tell me more about that. You know, because I think that we're in this elevated climate where we're not willing to put ourselves in the other person's shoes and try to see that we don't have to keep it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a coat we can put on for a moment just to try to understand somebody. And I think that that comes a long way. And, and, and we would just, so everybody knows we would be willing to talk to uh, anyone, you know, who even sees things differently. In fact, we're going to try to even find people that see mm -hmm. things somewhat differently so that we can um, have a discussion, have a discussion. You know, exactly. Expand the conversation. Because we'll, we'll admit we don't have all the answers, we but, but, there, but it, it's one of those things, like I've said before, is the things that aren't being talked about, and it's these things like the test that seem so outright wrong, and they are the cornerstone for 
how this whole thing is is structured and and we'd be having a very different conversation if we would uh do those differently and and I, so i think that if we're not going to have that conversation we know that that uh they're not going to that they're uh, mr global mr global <laughs> yeah. is not going to have that conversation either and we don't expect anybody to really you know take everything we say as face value right this is our research this is germ theory and terrain theory they're both theories they're right? both theories one one is just the the uh is paying a lot of people's bills <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people i guess a small group of people yeah so. uh, but we i think if there was a line that we could say in the end would be you know stay safe we want everybody to stay safe obviously and stay curious stay safe and stay curious i like that too all right. Well, stay safe <laughs> and stay curious. This is the Collective Resistance Podcast with Leo and Fabi. <laughs> <laughs>